While shepherds kept their watching O'er silent flocks by night Behold, throughout the heavens There shone a holy light Go tell it on the mountain Over the hills and everywhere Go tell it on the mountain That Jesus Christ is born Come on, sing it with me Oh, go tell it on the mountain Over the hills and everywhere Go tell it on the mountain That Jesus Christ is born Down in a lonely manger The humble Christ was born And he brought us salvation That blessed Christmas morn Go tell it on the mountain Go over the hills and everywhere Go tell it on the mountain That Jesus Come on, y'all. I need to hear you. Oh, go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Oh, tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ did. Clap with me, sing. Go. And then, go. That Jesus Christ is born One more time Go tell it on the mountain Over the hills Everywhere Oh, go tell it on the mountain That Jesus Christ is born You may be seated Go tell it from the mountain, from the highest height. It's a message that you don't want anybody to miss. It's a message you want everybody to hear. It's a message that brings freedom, that brings peace, that brings joy. Because it's a message that ushers you into the presence of Almighty God. That song was first recorded in the late 1800s, made popular by the Fisk Jubilee Singers. But it was sung for years by those who had been brought from Africa and enslaved in this country. And they came with many different religions, but they were introduced to the gospel by their captors. And isn't it just the power of the gospel that through the dark hypocrisy of the evil men that were their captors, they still saw the glorious light of the gospel that brought freedom to their souls. And it's that message of the gospel that we're going to talk about today, that which ushers you into the presence of Almighty God. And so Pastor Matt is going to come at this time and speak to us about the gospel. Let's prepare our hearts in prayer. Lord, we want to thank you that we don't have an empty message. We don't just have a message that tells us about the birth of just any baby boy. But we have 
the message of the incarnation that God in his love sent his son that we might have eternal life. Speak to our hearts today. Prepare our hearts to hear your word and to receive once again the message of the gospel. May your name be praised. Amen. All right, everybody. I don't play the piano. I didn't want you to know he could do all that. I cede my time to the minister from Lauderhill. Man, I learned pretty early on that God had given Winston those gifts. Not only had they been born in him, but he'd grown up in a tradition that just knew how to celebrate with all, with all of their expressions. And so I'm so grateful and blessed that you're here, my brother. Man, these people that he talked about, these people who just lived in darkness, the least, the lost, the left out for hundreds of years, somehow emerged. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit lent them his imagination. I heard that this week in a video that Ryan had sent to us. The Holy Spirit lent them his imagination in the midst of the darkness, and they were somehow able to embrace this gospel, this good news. Why was it good news to them that Christ was born? Why is it good news to you and me? What is it? Is it joy? Yes. Is it hope? Yes. Is it peace and love and unity? Yes. Is it security? Is it the end of suffering? Is it the end of tears and sorrow? Yes. But that's not all it is. That's not even the root of what it is. Those things without the deepest meaning of the gospel are just reflections and shadows, hopeful longings that fall through our hands like dust if there isn't something more, something deeper. We've been in this series, this uh, unsinkable series, and we've been talking about these ancient and eternal truths that, that are the pillars and foundation that make all those things real. We talked about truth being external and absolute, outside of ourselves, not something that we define for ourselves any more than a boat drifting in the waves and the wind determines north and south and east and west. Those things exist outside of itself, and that's what makes the boat be able to find its way. And we, and we know that those things, those truths are rooted in someone eternal, that's God, the author and architect of those truths, that those truths didn't create themselves from nothing. They rested on the shoulders of the great divine creator and maker and architect, and that is God. But this week we talk about this word, gospel, that has so much weight. When I say that word, depends on who you say it to, it just has, paints a whole picture. Have you ever seen one of these? You know what that is? Who thinks they know what that is? You think that's a big wheel, right? Let me tell you what that is. That is a, specifically, Lewis Marks and Company big wheel low-riding tricycle introduced it into the National Toy Hall of Fame in Rochester, New York in 2009. That's what that is. And that's what I wanted for Christmas when I was five years old. 
I saw it. I had friends who had it. I dreamt of it. I had visions of it. There were commercials about it. You notice how it's shot low and you look up high, kind of like it's, there's majesty to that thing. And I could imagine myself in it and on it and riding around in it and it would do this thing in the commercial where it would spin out, right? And, and that was like every kid's dream. And so that was what I wanted for Christmas. But this is what I got. that's it amen let's pray so here's the deal with this though here's what happened so my 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 brothers and my dad who had orchestrated this thing they could tell that i was i was crestfallen they could tell though i was trying to be a good soldier i probably wasn't trying to be a good soldier i was probably pounding pretty obviously i probably went (laughs) something like that whatever five-year-olds do selfish entitled spoiled five-year-olds so they said, no, 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 let us explain, let us explain. We set out to get the big wheel. We were going to get the big wheel. The Lewis Marks big wheel low-riding tricycle, which will eventually be inducted into the National Toy Hall of Fame. We were going to get that. But on our journey of discovery, we found the cheetah. I did not know back then that perhaps the cheetah was cheaper than the big wheel, but it turns out it wasn't. It was more expensive. And they began to explain the benefits of the cheetah. They said, you see, it has a metal frame instead of, instead of the plastic frame, which means that it's stronger. And they said, you see, it has this bicycle technology with the rubber tire on the front and the spokes instead of the plastic wheel, so it's faster. And they said, it's just made out of better, better products, better stuff than the big wheel, so it'll last longer. I didn't buy it yet. I was better. I was coming, I was coming down off of my pity party a little bit, but I, I didn't, I didn't buy it yet. I didn't buy it yet until I, until I got in the seat. I got in the seat of that cheetah and we pointed it downward in the driveway and I started pedaling that thing and I got up to like warp speed in a five-year-old's mind. Had to be way faster than, than the big wheel, I was certain. And I did what you're supposed to do and I cranked that wheel and I just started spinning and spinning. You know what a 1080 is? Three spins. Three spins I do in this thing. Before it's over, I master five spins on the cheetah. Let me tell you the deal. Good news is about perspective. Good news on Christmas morning for a five-year-old is that there's presents under the tree. Better news is that they're the presents you wanted. But the best news is when there is something under that tree that is better than you could ever have imagined. The cheetah. What's the good news of the gospel? What is it really? Good, better, best. What is it? You know, even when you think about Christmas, that matures in your mind too. So pretty quickly, you have a few Christmases with that, with that Christmas morning hangover. You know what I'm talking about? You, you rip through all your presents and you play with all of them and it's, but you're done and it's like one. And, you, you've, you've run through the satisfaction, the hopeful longing of all these toys. You've run through it, and then you kind of have that afternoon experience that next day where all of it's just memories now. And, and maybe it didn't completely live up to your fullest satisfaction. Um, you get older, and these things to satisfy less. 
And then uh, uh, through the years, what you think is, well, I'm going to go to, you know, a better, you know, a more expensive thing that's better, right? It'll be enduring, right? So you try that for a little while, but the same thing happens, you know, and you can't even look back and really remember what these things were. Before you know it, that thing you thought was so great wasn't as great as you thought, didn't live up to its expectations. And then as you mature, it becomes less about what's under the tree and more about who's around the tree. And it becomes about the relationships around the tree, and it becomes more and more about peace. That becomes the good news of Christmas. In fact, I even remember my oldest brother, Art, who was a pretty successful guy. It was really hard to ever figure out anything you could get him for Christmas. And I remember about 20 years ago, Art just started. You'd ask him, you'd send him, you'd try everything to get it out of him, what he wanted, and he would always say the same thing, world peace. That was like how he ended the conversation. Just get me world peace. And then we go, ha, 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 and then we get him some socks. Um, that would be good news, though, wouldn't it? Peace. Well, you know, Jesus promises peace in the gospel. He certainly does. In our search for the best news, in our search for all of the answers to our questions in life, all the solutions to our struggles, we do have to deal with Jesus and what he said about the gospel. In Mark 1, Jesus sa- it says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Turn. Turn back. That word repent, it doesn't just mean ask forgiveness for your sins. It's this idea that you went off the mark. There was a target. There was, a, there was something that you needed to be integrated and in line with, and you turned at some point, and you went off astray on your own. And so Jesus comes, and he says, repent, turn back, and believe in what? The gospel. Believe in the good news, a word that only appears in the New Testament. 93 times it appears in the New Testament. Believe in the good news. Let me tell you what the good news is. The good news is that we get to be with God forever. And Jesus made a way. Let me say that again. That might sound, yeah, 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 whatever, but, but then what? No, 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 that's it. The good news, according to Jesus, is that we get to be what he is. We get to be in perfect union and fellowship with the Father. And that he has come to pay the highest price so that we could have that for which we were made. The good news is only good news if your first desire is God himself. And nothing else matters. So we gave you guys a survey several weeks ago. It was about this series. It was a survey given to all the Church United churches, uh, sort of about their core beliefs, the core beliefs of the participants. Um, we asked sort of diagnostic questions that would evidence a person's embrace of traditional Christianity. Let me tell you what. You guys were like off-the-chart Christians, okay? In terms of this survey, you nailed it. I think like all the evangelical Christians go to this church, maybe, um, based on the surveys, right? If the, there's so many here, there can't be any anywhere else. Um, here's what you embrace specifically. You, you embrace Jesus specifically uh, as a way to know God. You embrace absolute truth. You embrace God as the author of that truth. So you know the pillars. 
And I want to say just as an aside, to those of you who are new to all of this, um, I, I am today just, um, admittedly, I'm going to speak to the Christians a little bit, but I want you to overhear because I want you to understand what you would be getting yourself into if you embraced Christianity, if you embraced this gospel. But, but I want to speak to you all today because here's the thing. You know, we all know everything we need to know, and yet at the same time, culturally in our society and in the West, we're sort of lamenting the dying church we're lamenting this idea that we're, we're on the egg, we're exiles on the outside looking in, that it's this battle, it's this struggle. And all throughout scripture, whenever it says that there is a warring nation, there's trouble, there's struggle, it always points to the city within the city. And it says the issue isn't with the people who wouldn't know any better, the issue is with the people who God knows, the people who accept these pillars, the people who have received the gospel, the people who have said, they've declared by faith in Christ alone, I want my sins forgiven so that I might have the joy of the presence of God. Again, he says, look there when there are problems. Look in the hearts of the believers. And you know, when you look at Acts chapter 2, my guys know, the past staff knows my favorite, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it describes us. It says, here's what it's like. It says, in, in summary, it says they believed all those pillars, and here's what happened. There was awe. There was joy. There was love. There was generosity. There was sacrifice. And the community around them saw it and were enamored with it, curious about it, fascinated with it, and they were drawn to it like a warm flame on a cold night. And it says they added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's what happens when you get in the seat of the cheetah. You don't just read the box. You don't just have someone try and convince you of the merits of the cheetah. You get in the seat. That's what I want to do today a little bit. I want to, I want to get in the seat of the gospel. I want to try it out because here's what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Way to Glory. It's beautiful. He says this. He says, nearly every description of what we will find ultimately if we attempt to follow Christ contains an appeal to our desires. In other words, it tells you you're going to get peace and hope and all these things and no more tears. But he says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem the Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Do you have infinite joy? Is that what the pillars have done for you? Did you check, yes, there are absolutes, there's absolute truth. Yes, there is a God who's bigger than me and I'm not him. Yes, I believe in the gospel that Jesus specifically is the way to know that God. Did you check those boxes? Do you have joy? Do you count all things loss, but for the joy of knowing God your Father through Christ? Do you have it? Walk it through today. That's our project, to bring that gospel that is supposed to be new in us every morning to life again. So I want you to see a picture of what the gospel alive looks like in someone. You know, obviously, to, to understand Christianity, you have to deal with Christ, the author of our faith, right? 
But there's someone else I think it's really important to deal with because in a lot of ways, he's just like you and me, okay? Uh, His name is Paul, the apostle. I want to look at a few things that Paul said about the gospel. Paul was a religious leader. It's very important to remember some things about Paul beyond just that he was a religious leader and a Pharisee. If you grew up in the church, you went to Sunday school, you know that. But here's the thing with Paul. You got to put him in the modern context for a minute. Paul, um, he was, he was one of the elite. He was one of the cultural elite. He was an insider. He was at the top of his faith. He was a religious leader, a Pharisee in the Jewish community. So he was one of their ruling leaders. And he was also a citizen of Rome, the most powerful and wealthy nation in the world. He had Rome at his back. He had protection from Rome as a Roman citizen. He was at the top of his game. And let me tell you what he had. He had reputation. He had wealth. He had power and influence. And he was at an age where it would have been the perfect time for him to begin to make his exit strategy. He had his golden parachute. He could have settled in. He could have made his retirement nest egg. He could have started plotting out his property, stepping back from his responsibilities. And in the midst of all that, he was persecuting people who were laying claim, who were upsetting the apple cart by claiming this Messiah had come and that it was Jesus. And so he was literally responsible for the persecution and killing of Christians. It said he was holding the cloak of the people who stoned Stephen to death, one of the first Christians, for proclaiming the gospel. But then he got in the seat. Or should I say Jesus took him by the shoulders and threw him in the seat and said, Saul, Saul, he met him on the road to Damascus, and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? said, Saul had scales over his eyes, and they fell off. And in sort of this fascinating inverse trajectory, just as those those people in prisons and in captive found those spirituals that led them to freedom. This apostle Paul, who was the ultimate free man in this world, chose captivity. He, divide, he divested himself of the worldly promises for this word, the gospel. To the church at Rome, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. At Philippi, he said, he praised the Philippians. He says, you are partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Do you hear these words? You who proclaim to have sat in the seat of the presence of God through Christ. He just mentions in passing, while I was in prison, you were with me. To the Galatians, he calls him out. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let us be accursed. He defends the gospel to the Galatians. And then he really lays it down with the church in Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which, I, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, he said, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. 
And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And I love this. It's so beautiful. And he said, as last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The big question for you and me is, where did that get Paul? Because I guess, theoretically, it should get us to the same place. If we've sat in that seat, if Jesus has taken us by his grace and put us in that seat, where did it get him? Now, obviously, that's not a picture of Paul. I think it captures Paul pretty well. I want to walk for a moment to the end of Paul's life, and you need to know that Paul died unceremoniously executed by the Romans for basically treason, for proclaiming a different king, for causing trouble, really. The same reason Jesus was killed. We don't know exactly how or where. This is where this man, the cultural elite, the highly educated, the wealthy and powerful with the weight of Roman authority behind him who could have coasted to the end... This is where he ended in this life, and I want you to hear his words. These were his words to the elders. You elders, I want you to hear this. These were his words to the elders of Ephesus, one of the churches he'd started. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And by the way, he was a Jew. Most of the early Christians were Jews. He was talking specifically about a group of sociopolitical Jewish leaders who had conspired against him. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. Do you know what that means? I have to go. I don't want to, but I have to. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment imprisonment and afflictions await me. That's what the gospel's gotten them thus far. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I'm going to die before I see you. That's where the gospel got him. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. I've divested myself of all those things. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, to those who were with me. In other words, he worked for a living, making tents. That's what the gospel got him. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said is more blessed to give than receive. That's where the gospel took him. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Stop for a minute and imagine that scene. Imagine you around him. Imagine him as one of us here. One of your pastors, one of your elders, one of your leaders. Imagine it being you with the people God has given you. He knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's where it took him. In this world, under the enchantment of worldly desire and worldly promises and worldly longings and worldly hope and worldly sins, that's where the gospel gets you. But this is not where it ends. Paul knew that it was where it began. There are five promises of the rewards of the gospel that C.S. Lewis talks about. He says, number one, we will be with Christ. That's a promise of the gospel. We will be with Christ. Number two, we will be like him. Number three, we will have glory. Number four, we will be somehow fed, feasted, entertained, Number five, we'll have some official position in the universe, ruling cities, judging angels, being pillars of God's temple. We don't know exactly how that works, but we know that those five things are rewards promised by the gospel. The question is this, why any of them except the first? Can anything be added to the conception of Christ? Somebody of old has said, who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God. Let me say that again. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. That's the gospel. So why all these other things? Because God is trying to express in ways that we understand Stand in human terms and human symbols what it will be like, what it will feel like to experience the joy of the presence of God himself. So he gives, us, he gives us a lot of things, a lot of metaphors, some of which may be exactly real and concrete to help us understand and imagine 
what being in the presence of God will be like. I got a, uh, we got a Christmas card yesterday from a family in our church here, awesome family um, in our community group. And uh, they had a really difficult 2019. Lots of challenges. And this was written by the mother of the family, a woman who, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, has been through a lot of Christmases, starting as a little child, and who came to a different place. And she talked about it in her letter. I think it's a picture of the fruit of the joy of the presence of God in a way that maybe you can very viscerally understand. Here's what she said. This is what they long for at Christmas. This is what they remember and experience. Soccer games. A new addition to the family zoo. The text that comes just at the right moment. Five minutes to sit and enjoy the sun. The rainy day that begs to be spent curled up with a good book. Time with family. A morning cup of coffee spent watching the bees. Belly laughs. The perfect snuggle with the dog. Impromptu walks that spur big and small conversations, the near miss of yet another hurricane, nights sitting in the backyard with friends, the noisy hum of a house full of children. That may be just a taste. A beautiful, sweet taste that we could understand, but it is so much more. You see, one day all of those riches, all those rich pleasures of life, they'll be more than glimpses and shadows and memories and longings. They'll be our reality. They'll be the joyous fruit of our abiding in the perfect presence of God forever. And Christ has made the way. The reality Christianity proposes is that we all need and that we all need to seek simply the joy of the presence of God All of these other promises added are only to help us imagine the true joy of that presence in terms that we understand. But it's the joy of his presence that is the promise of the gospel. That's first. That's all. And if you want all those other things, but you don't want his presence, you'll never get them. And if you did, they would just be dust. It's God that makes them real. It's God that shores them up. And that presence of God is made accessible through the work of Christ. That's the gospel. You can see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If anyone loves God, he is what? Known by God. Not he gets this, 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 and this. And the terror of the rejection of the gospel is to be unknown by him. What does Jesus say? He says, on that day of judgment, those who have not loved God, those who have not been saved, he will declare what? You don't get all these things? No. He will declare, I never knew you. It's true that you'll have peace, but it's not the best news. There will be no more injustice, but it's not enough. There will be joy and love and the end of suffering, but not enough. It's true that you won't have guilt and shame anymore, but that's not enough. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. In Revelation, the last place the word gospel appears in all of Scripture, it appears at the end of time. 
And here's what it says. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on earth. To every nation and tribe and language and people, the the gospel overcomes. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That is the end game to love and fear and worship God again. So as I imagine this angel, this angel hovering over the earth, proclaiming the gospel throughout, I thought about, uh, you know, birds and the beauty of just watching. You ever sit out at the beach or in the mountains, just watch a bird moving back and forth across the updrafts and the warmth and all those things? You ever, you ever see that? Well, you know, I thought you could look at that bird from a couple different perspectives. You could say, that bird, he's got these wings and they're gang, you know, they're hard to deal with and, and uh, he's got to get around by this wind. He's a slave to the wind. He can't do anything without the wind. You could carry that perspective that this poor bird was under the bondage of the wind because he depended on it for all of life. He couldn't get anywhere or do anything or use the tools that he had, but for this slave master that was the wind. You could look at it that way, I suppose, but it would seem odd, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it make more sense to say that he was made for the wind? That it was the wind who, because he was bound to it, could set him free to soar and to be everything he was made to be. It's the wind to which he is held captive that sets him free. Does it set you free? Have you sat in the seat? I don't care what you believe. I don't care what you've read on the box or how persuasive someone's arguments are. Is that how you feel about your God? Is that how you feel in times of plenty and in want? Is that how you feel in times of sickness and in health? Is that how you feel in times of richer and in poorer about the husband that is your God. Is that what life is like for you because you believe the gospel? I want to ask everybody that today because God wants you to experience that. That's what it means to repent. It means to stop fighting the wind and start soaring on the wind to return to the purpose for which you were made to be in the joyful presence of God and to worship him fully. So I'm going to lead us for a minute. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just reflect on that personally. And, you know, you might not have the answer, right? You might be crawling out of your seat and going, yes, I want Jesus. I want that. I understand the Lord God. I'm ready to take that trajectory of wherever it takes me, whether it takes me down the road of Paul or someone else. I'm ready to go for it. That might be you today, and I want you to do that when we pray. I'm going to pray a prayer that would allow you to do that. Or maybe you need to chew on this. You need to say, man, boy, this is unsettling to me. I've grown up in the church. I've been a Christian, but boy, I sure don't have joy. I don't have that. I want you to pray about that and ask the Spirit to put you in the seat like Jesus did for Paul. And I want you to experience that. When you come to worship, that's what we're doing, you see. We're experiencing God. We're sitting in the seat to worship him fully. I want you to take your time and find your way to this. And if you're new to this whole thing, I just want you to reflect on this idea.
And if you want to talk to somebody after, we have people that stick around the sides and they pray for you guys during, during the closing song. And they're also there to talk and answer questions and just pray for you. Just pray for you. But let's go to the Lord in prayer.